right, welcome back, everybody. Episode 19, Lou Gehrig's Update. I am Dr. Christopher Fasano. He is Dr. Yosef Gannat. And this is the Stem Cell Podcast. Yosef, what's going on, my man? I'm great. How are you doing over there? I'm doing good, man. Busy week. We got the Next Gen Conference this week in Saratoga. Hope uh, we're going to see some people out there from our audience. So I've been busy getting that ready. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. The weather should be nice too, huh? Yeah, I think so. It's fun because we get to go outside and the place is beautiful. So I've been doing that, um, working in the lab, just trying to read up on these papers, you know, same stuff. How about you? How's it going down there in uh, the NYC? Uh, You know, uh, change of media as usual and uh, taking care of the mice. Actually, there was an interesting study I got to get to, but uh, before we uh, get to that, you got any other Jones announcements? Yeah, Jones yeah, with just, data. I just, no, I, the, this I is, this one's kind of almost a rant-worthy topic. It's oh, like, what man, is this is going to be a good one, everybody. Yeah, this is going to yeah. be a good one. Well, let's, let me just, let's explain the title, Yost, because we left him hanging with the Lou Gehrig's update. We have our guest tonight, Dr. Kevin Egan from Harvard University and the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Uh, Kevin's a friend and a, and a really uh, amazing stem cell scientist and he's really had he's really been there at all different facets and it's kind of interesting because there's a lot of scnt talk yosef we're going to talk about but uh, kevin was there early in the days of somatic cell nuclear transfer and then when the ips boom hit he was one of the first to really do a disease model using ips and it was for als or lou garrick's disease so we have him coming back on or coming on the show i should say tonight to give us an update on where that where that is with his new papers that were published. So I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to that, Yos. Yeah, um, yeah, he's one of the better people to talk to when it comes to this because he's also published uh, with Asif before on the C9ORF gene. Remember that one? Yes. C9ORF, yes. That's such that a was strange that, that was new that random. I, that was that crazy mutation. I didn't really know that, Yos, yeah. that it was the incidence that, like, if you if you have that mutation, you know, it's, it's like... Yeah, it's like 50... 50 year <laughs> and yeah it's it's risky but so he's going to give us an update on where that's at so we're excited about that um let's see uh, stemcellpodcast.com uh you can email us stemcellpodcast.gmail.com twitter at stemcellpodcast um let's see here keep everything coming in um we got some really nice and some great feedback and it really helps and it really it's really great to see so please uh Please send it in, right, Yos? We really we look forward to that. Yos and I share that when we get them. We text each other back and show them. It's really nice. It makes us feel good because uh, we really like doing this, and we're glad to hear that everyone out there is liking it. So yes. send them on in. It's kind of like the gasoline for the show. It, it, it keeps us going, right? Or the coffee in the morning. Gasoline. <laughs> so uh, right, on man. that note, we should just want to get this popping off or yeah, what? Yeah, I'll go, uh, start the science roundup with a cell report study uh, this week that used iPS cells, the induced pluripotent stem cells, to from uh, azoospermia patients. These guys cannot make sperm. And uh, they were able to produce germ cells from the iPS cells from these patients, which was surprising. And uh, apparently, uh, even the control group, they are more readable to making sperm than human ES cells. So that's pretty interesting. You know? I saw that. I, I was reading that. It's very interesting because that's a really big area of... of um, 
you know, I'm thinking about the clinical impact. You know, we think about like the, well, our disease focuses, but this is, you know, infertility is a big, big, big market and problem, you know? So yeah, this is, this was cool. Yeah. I don't know if you saw that Amy Wagers and uh, Lee Rubin published in Science uh, on this GDF11 gene that improved the exercise in mice that were the equivalent of like 70 years old. And, it was uh, like to the parabiosis thing. Or yeah, the called, par- right? parabiotic system, which is pretty cool, but uh, a little controversial. But you have to essentially attach two uh, mice together to get their circulatory systems. It's basically sharing a system and changing. It's like you know twins. How people use twin studies, but it's like more direct. Even it's pairing. Yeah, two it's different. like you just you're sewing the two together. <laughs> yeah, but it, it it you can make amazing discoveries using this model, and this you is can. showing that this gene GDF11 uh, was found in higher con- It's found in higher concentrations in young mice, and uh, the the effects that it seems to have on increased uh, blood flow in the brain as well, and um, was which was found there there's two papers on this gene and uh they found that it was probably uh due to improved vascularity and uh blood flow uh that this gene promotes so there's i'm sure there's more to come especially uh this could be like a fountain of youth gene so uh you can it's all about the blood flow man yeah yeah you know? Uh, so speaking of what I was getting to earlier, alluding to this J Neuro study came oh, out recently. Oh man, yes. hold on a sec. Let me let me get let me get comfortable here. Uh, no, oh, no, no. It was a study showing that uh, pain from inflammation was greatly reduced. Uh, oh, oh, I'm sorry. This is something else. Actually, this is another J Neuro study showing that pain from inflammation was greatly reduced in sexual motivation in female mice. Uh, that were in heat. So basically, females were sensitive to the inflammation, the pain, essentially, and uh, males were completely unaffected as a control group. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, pain relievers uh, reversed the side effect. It was a pretty cool model. Like they had the the males were unable to sneak to the women. There was like a barrier that separated the males and females. So the female mouse would go over to the cage and, you know, the the opposite situation, the males like could pick or not to be with women. And it, it was a cool model. And that it, is cool. Yeah. That the mice, uh, the female mice were definitely, and, uh, they showed that pain relievers reversed the effects. So it seemed to wow. be, yes. Um, anyhow, I don't know if there's some ominous news I saw this week, uh, that a new smallpox related virus was found in two herdsmen in Georgia. They call oh, it orthopox no. virus. Ortho, oh. yeah. I Anything don't, ortho is just bad. Yeah, and then with the pocket, the yeah, with the pox, you know, it's like, oh man, I definitely oh. do not have that vaccine. I this no. is this is where I envy the people who have the mark, you know, from Europe uh, on their arms from the polio vaccine. Uh, most Americans do not have this, but uh, if they're married to someone from maybe Eastern Europe, they may know. They got that like chunk of arm missing. Uh, yeah. Uh, moving on there. Okay. So oh, this man. is finally what I was alluding yes. to. A nature medicine study showing that mice do not like the smell of male researchers. <laughs> what? 
Yeah, it, there, there's something in our pheromones that, you know, is specific. I mean, they, they don't even like the clothing. They use clothing as a control. And uh, it, the stress that it causes equal to 15 minutes of restraint stress. No, come on. Yes, yes. So, so basically, when a dude walks in the room, they start bugging out. Yeah, because they think that their nests or their you know oh, territory under attack, is like, under attack. Yeah, because males are pretty much you know is that why not they pee nice. all the time. Because those male mice stink. Like you know, maybe they get nervous, so they're trying to mark their territory or something like that. Yeah, I've seen all sorts of responses to. Um, <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Does it depend on the cologne you're wearing? Like sometimes if you have a nicer cologne where they chill out, less stress? You know, we may have to start wearing some sort of pheromone <laughs> blocker Wait, because... Who's who's doing this? Like what's like what's going on in this study? Like what are they trying to see? Well, they have- you know, apparently f- women researchers are better for mice uh, if you really want to read into the study. And as... A male researcher who works with mice. I'm a little nervous, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, they're used to you by now. Oh yeah, I hope so. Um, moving on, there was That's a nature crazy. study. That's funny. <laughs> there was a nature study that used human yes cells to uh, transplant plant heart tissue in uh, macaques. That uh, they were able to replace forty percent of. Um, the heart, but they uh, had a little bit of arrhythmia. Uh, they use bio, and now they're starting to use bioreactors uh, to make cardiocytes. You know those uh, little organoid systems yeah. we were yep. talking about. We've talked yep. about previously. Yeah, so uh, that was in nature. Uh, there was a hum- human molecular genetics study sh- uh, that found that mutations in P10, uh, P the, and then. T-E-N, uh, causes increased brain size and social deficits. So you can find that over in human molecular genetics. Cool. Yeah, P-10. I, 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 I've seen some like tumor-related stuff with P-10. P-10 too. is a, P-10 yeah. is a uh, tumor suppressor gene. It's a very, very... It's like 60... If, if you have that mutation, you have less of it. It's like 60% likely you're getting cancer. It's like a master master turn down of signaling pathways that lead to excessive proliferation so well according like to a, this you have increased brain size and you're a little bit socially awkward yet so you have this is with more or less a mutation what is yeah this? it was a mutation in p10 mm-hmm. so yeah you take off a mutation in the brakes causes increased whatever proliferation in this case yeah you don't um, want a mutation in the brakes it's yeah, never good yeah you need both yeah uh, you, <laughs> you need yeah. full functioning brakes yeah. uh there was a journal of applied physiology study that used a double blind randomized cl- clinical trial of soy of a soy dairy blend uh was better than a single protein source uh which was whey uh, you know, whey protein, W-H-E-Y. Yeah, protein. people of whey was where it was at. Everyone was using whey. No yeah. good. So uh, they say a soy dairy blend was better, and uh, it was in- it led to increase uh, the net amino acid balance for uh, that the muscles got. So uh, look for that soy dairy blend. <laughs> Sounds like something I can get at Starbucks or something. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've seen the results from the Savaldi, Solvaldi trial uh, for hepatitis C, but it's no. been like a wonder drug, man. Uh, but it, it's it's an antiviral, but it's getting a lot of press because it costs a thousand dollars a day. Jeez. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So can it really be that expensive to make? Apparently, it takes like 86 days out of the year, so it's like 86K a year to get this drug, but it works 
wonders like people is, who are the, taking it or see, all right can this is going to be like i i can i'm about to freak out right now so maybe we should just because this is i want to talk about a rant are you telling me that there's no mechanism in this country of wealth that we have that can't make that a little bit more affordable by turning it into some big business hepatitis c a lot of people have that right yeah and the results from these clinical trials i mean the doctors the they're raving about it and the, the patients are like it's changed my life. So that's that's, um, that's wild. Wow, that's, that's great. Yeah, on on the opposite end of that good news, uh, well, it's it's mixed news that so you know the thousand dollar a day. But anyhow, there is a very kind of scary uh, study showing that in the annals of oncology, that the rates in Europe from pancreatic cancer is like the one cancer that keeps on rising. Ugh. Rose, yeah, rose both in men and women. I feel well, like I've heard about, like I hear about that more in mainstream. Oh yeah, pancreatic cancer. Yeah, yeah, but that's kind of weird. Like a lot of other cancers have gone down. Most have gone down, and um, I think like lung cancer from smoking is still kind of like, but it's on the trajectory down because it's lingering around. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, it's lingering from yeah. the Mad Men days. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know, what? I've, I will say this, man. I have noticeably, noticeably seen less people smoking, right? Or maybe it's just or the e-cigarettes. E-cigarettes you know? now. They're using e-cigarettes True. too, True. Uh, which is probably a better alternative uh, at the end of the day. Um, there was a cell paper uh, that had two uh, different groups actually independently discovered as a disease of reduced brain size and sensory and motor deficits caused by a mutation in a gene called CLP1, which uh, clip one, I guess um, it plays a, a major role in generating mature functional tRNAs. Um, this is an interesting gene, man. Clip one, huh. it, yeah, it it like has an interaction interaction with the tRNA splicing endonuclease. It's called the T-SEN complex. So the T-SEN, uh, yeah, T-SEN complex, the uh, splicing endonuclease. So you get like a large amount, like an accumulation of linear tRNAs, uh, introns, when you have this mutation. So it's like the whole processing of RNA machinery just gets backed up. It's like a clog. And they found five unrelated families that have this rare mutation in CLIP1. So wow. yeah, you can find that over in Cell. Always cool. a good paper to publish in cell man it's like you know like it's like it's what they're do i like, say they're like it's louis like ck bmw like the like the no they're like the louis ck uh, sorry, uh, sorry they're like the louis ck of research you know he's like a comedian's comedian they're like a researcher's researcher paper <laughs> i mean journal but uh anyhow moving on there was a nature study showing that the y chromosome is here to stay did you see that uh, I did not, but I'm happy to hear that it's here to stay. Yes, yeah, 19 genes uh, that are also on the X, and they compared uh, the Y chromosome in, from the monkey chromosome, and uh, they found that it's only lost 1% of its ancestral genes over the past 25 million years, which isn't bad. Wow. Um, yeah, and it has, you know, this. they also compared it to uh, the marmoset, the mouse, the rat, the bull. <laughs> they they really went all over the place with this yeah one. they did yeah so uh that's cool yeah yeah uh you can find that in nature it's crazy i mean the y's only got like a hundred and i think uh the x is about two thousand genes on it something like that and it's crazy the disparity we're we're very really simple is. i know I've, i i actually <laughs> I was recently talking about this it's, I mean, it's very cool it's very interesting i mean it's a good thing we have one too but we 
or why doesn't really do much, but it's here to stay. That's for sure. Um, there is a J neuro study uh, use, uh, p- showing that CRTC1, the this Krebs regulated transcription coactivator in the hippocampus, gives way to signals needed for long term memory consolidation. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, plaques in Alzheimer's uh, prevent CRTC1 normal function. So. Uh, some nice Alzheimer's disease-related uh, research. There was, uh, what's our favorite journal? PNAS. Yes, PNAS study showing that uh, antibiotic resistance, uh, MRSA, you know, the uh, bacteria, is, uh, it's called USA 300, was prevalent in New York City residences of people who contracted in, which I guess is, you know, you would expect that. But they analyzed uh, 161 homes and found like major reservoirs in the houses. Ugh. It's kind of gross uh, to think about. Um, but yeah, it's a little scary, the antibiotic-resistant MRSA. That should not get out of hospitals. Um, Nature Medicine... Uh, Study from Ron Duman over at Yale showed that uh, from postmortem tissues of depressed patients, that red one, a mTOR one inhibitor, you gotta love that mTOR. We've talked about mTOR before. May be responsible for dendritic atrophy in the prefrontal cortex, and red one mutant mice are resistant to changes uh, made from chronic, unpredictable stress. So uh, that mTOR inhibitor. It has something to do with uh, dendritic atrophy in the. So where was this, Joseph? Uh, Nature Medicine, Ron Duman over at Yale. That guy's a powerhouse, man. He, yeah, I got to read that. I'm, I, I, I'm, st- I'm looking into mTOR pathway and some of my stuff. I got to check that dude, out. Ron Duman and Bruce McEwen are like the god. McEwen are the gods of stress. They, they, they just keep, you know, they, they're. Are I, they stressed out well, people in real life or are they calm? Well, Bruce McEwen's like stress and Ron Duman's also like depression, but. Mm-hmm. Um, they use stress to, mo- you know, model depression in, in a lot of mice and rodent studies. Um, but anyhow, uh, there was an, finally, I'll just, cause we're on low, low on time, a uh, nature communication study on microRNA 574-5P. They got to rename these microRNAs. This is horrible. 574-5P, uh, microRNA. <laughs> Uh, the production is um, normally most of the production of newborn neurons in the brain and APP antagonize it and ensure their timely birth. So this 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 microRNA 574-5P could be a new biomarker. Uh, huh. Yeah, for APP. Maybe if it know, is, they'll also, rename it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe they got to because this is like not even as cool as R two D two. It's just five seventy four dash five p. I mean, what are you gonna do with that? So um, yeah, finally on that, I'll just give a shout out to a exoplanet that was found. Uh, they call it Biden. Did you see this? It was Nature uh-huh. Day. Is this pink? Biden? Yeah, they call it Biden because uh, it's a pink frozen planet that's uh, seven point five billion miles from the sun. At the age of at the edge of our star solar system called uh, VP one thirteen, they call it Biden. It's a, a dwarf planet. Wow, we should. I would love to have Neil deGrasse Tyson to come on the podcast and talk to us about what the heck that means. Yeah, I'm just well, putting that out there. Yeah, you know? I love that show. By the way, That's I know I love just, him. He's yeah, great. he's yeah, he's great. So, uh, what's on your end? You got all right. So let's see here. Stuff? Let's so. 
All right. Um, the when this whole stab situation you know, came oh. out, you know, in Japan, it just gets snowballed and got worse. I, I thought in the back of my mind, I said, you know what? I said, whatever, whatever happens here, please don't let this somehow creep into the Nobel Prize winning Shinya Yamanaka. You know, like I had that like in the back of my mind thinking like, all right, starting to spread. Did you see like, you know, um, and, and, and I, I thought, didn't think it would be right because it's one of the most reproducible methods out there, IPS technology. Everyone's using it. It's been fantastic. Yeah, it's solid. Um, so uh, my point here is that there have been uh, the head of the Rick, the Ricken committee that was judging over this Dr. Opakata and her, that stuff recently came out and had admitted to similar fraudulence in his own work. All right, so he's had a step down on the committee. And then there was another person who, who said something like this. And then this I was just reading. Um, Shinya Yamanaka then had a press conference and talked about a paper in 2000 that he was the first author on that had some like sort of a doctored image. And, uh, you know, he couldn't go back and find it because he said due to poor record keeping or something like that but and they said it's fine it's you know they don't they looked at it they didn't find any malice but there was a bad image and something blah 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 and so i said wow you know now this is getting like real here we're getting like this is like snowballing in japan so along those lines there's another article this is in science um and it says rick and the check 20,000 papers for doctored images and plagiarism so um, basically, the the Rickon president has asked all laboratory and research group leaders to check all previous publications for doctored images and plagiarism. So he's making them go back. Wow! And look, it says that it, it, the directive covers at least twenty thousand publications. What? Oh my gosh! Dude, I mean, he dropped real, the hammer. Really? He dropped the hammer. <laughs> I mean, like this could get real ugly. Why it has gotten real ugly? Yeah, yeah. But clearly, like this is maybe this is the culture there, man. I mean, it, maybe it's the culture here, but I mean, like, damn. I mean, he, what the hell? He definitely dropped the hammer. <laughs> he, to- he totally did. Wow. That's, he was like, all right, you know what? Go back and look at every single one. <laughs> wow. That's anyway, so this. So this is a, you know, uh, you know what though? I listened to a podcast from Nature. They finally addressed it, and um, at least at least they said something. Finally, it was on. You know, I think it was last week's episode. Um, really, I didn't hear that. Yeah, they finally talked about the whole. Stat. I mean, look, I think the bigger bigger conversation here is public publishing. You know, like how to publish and and reviewing and publications. I think that's a that's a that's something that we should really be looking into. But that's a whole another game. So let's. Let's continue along here. Yeah. Then, so I was in my office today, and uh, Sally Temple, who's on the show, she came into my office. We were talking. Told her I had the pod to podcast tonight. If she had any good stories, and she told me about this thing that was just published. It's crazy. She's like, "Do you know about the staircase of shame?" I said, "Shame, like the person S H A N E." She said, "No, shame S H A M E." I said, "No, I know about the walk of shame, but I don't know the staircase of shame." <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, there was this. Okay, so you know bone marrow. Um, the whole idea of taking bone marrow derived stem cells, right? Uh, and for heart disease. So what happens is you take your bone marrow derived stem cells, and you put them into like a heart attack or myocardial infarction model, and you know you're supposed to be able to grow the muscle back. Okay, there has been tremendous amount of trials done in this, and uh, the success is, yeah, you know, we poultry. You know, say just weak. Okay, so this paper comes out. This was by 
Daryl Francis, a cardiologist at the National Heart and Lung Institute at the Imperial College London, and this was on a BMJ uh, paper. BMJ. I'm forgetting what that stands for. Bio, mar- yeah, I don't know. Uh, molecular, anyway. yeah. Um, he examined the relationship between the number of factual discrepancies in the published reports of four dozen trials of autog- autologous bone marrow stem cells for heart disease and the magnitude those had on the efficacy of the data. Does that make sense? So let me, let me see if I can explain this. So the 133 reports of 49 trials, they found 604 discrepancies. What? 604 discrepancies. Now, this is how they're defined. Defined as two or more reported facts that cannot be both true because they are logically or mathematically incompatible. So they had this algorithmic formula and factual. Wow, res- I, w- I want to see that for every subject. Oh, they could do that? So, so I guess. So they say they don't know the cause of the discrepancies and they have asked for a resolution on over 150 of them through journals. None were resolved, although we found it triggered correspondence from lawyers. So lawyers contacted them, but they didn't get any retractions. All right, so the staircase of shame refers to this graph and this graph is crazy right so what they showed was that um there's a stepwise increase in the percent efficacy along with the number of discrepancies so in other words the more discrepancies you had in the paper the better the study was efficaciously so if you look at the line if the x-axis and the y you know what i mean you have uh, discrepancies on the x and efficacy on the y as you increase the number, it proportionally increases. So the better the result was, there was many more discrepancies in the paper. Really? He, he said there was this one at the top, the average effect was 7.7%, and it had 30 discrepancies found. Uh, I just don't get Isn't it. Isn't this a crazy study? You yeah. should read it. Yeah. You should read the paper. Yeah, that's that's horrible for science. Everybody, we'll put true, we're gonna put like, we put the links up on the website for all the papers, so you should go check the link and you can go try to read it. It's pretty wild, and and it's a completely like meta analysis. I so mean, just taking you, data, you, but you kind of want the opposite, right? You want like a, a sort of uniform agreement that these are the results. And of you're course, saying yeah, you don't want you don't want the efficacy to be correlated to discrepancy. <laughs> that's bad. I know, I but that, that that's the point. That this is like, yeah, you're blowing my mind with this. Okay, yeah, thanks, Sally. <laughs> I know. It's a shame. That's Go a, check it that, out. Yeah, thanks for that little bit of knowledge right there. I gotta look anyway, into that. So let's 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 depart a bit from the depressing and go into the exciting. There was a a big paper in Nature. Got a lot of press. An article out of Charles. Charles Murray, corresponding author. Um, okay, human embryonic stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes regenerate a non-human primate heart. I don't know if you saw this, Yost. But yeah, that was the 40% that I just breezed over real quick. That was Oh, is that what report. you're talking about? But yeah, did, yeah. So, so it's so cool, though. I mean, I'm looking at it. They, the way they analyze this, I mean, the remuscularization of the infarcted heart, I'm looking at the pictures. They show calcium. Uh, currents so like they're, they're able to detect like a normal physiological response it's pretty pretty um, yeah it's, they, it's amazing they said they needed like a billion cells for the macaque heart really yeah they did it in all they did mice too they they did a lot in that paper i didn't i didn't see the images though that i just read you know the synopsis which is pretty amazing so let's see here um 
I saw this article. It was um, uh, online. It said stem cells may be a key to long life research on the body of a 115-year-old woman. So I guess there is this woman, Hendrik van Andenschlipper or something. You like that accent I got there at the end? I like that. That was Um, beautiful. Thank you. She was the world's uh, oldest person. She died in 2005. She was 115 years old. So they started to do some work, you know, post-mortem on her body because, you know, if someone lives that long, we got to figure out how we can get some of that 115 years, us Americans, right? We want to live forever. So they were looking at the blood cells. This was in genome research, the study. They looked for mutations. And they found that her health, they were, the blood cells were remarkably healthy. And they found over 400 mutations. And they were found in parts of the genome that were not associated with disease, right? And her, apparently her body just accepted these mutations, whatever. Uh, she was in very good health until her death, no signs of dementia. So they say that like everyone starts with 20,000 hematopoietic stem cells or something like that and 1,300 are active. They said that when she died, she had only two active stem cells left. What? Producing her whole peripheral blood supply. Um, And so um, they are now analyzing these mutations, um, trying to see if these good mutations, if you will, were able to preserve the life of these stem cells. And they also found that the telomeres, you know, the little telomeres at the end, the chromosomes were very. Uh, Is it you very, say very telomeres? Short. I say telomeres. I didn't. I know say I, I. I don't say telo. I want to be a telomere guy, but I'm just a telomere guy. It sounds wow. too much better though. Telomeres. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna have to think about what kind of guy I am now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I mean, check this out: genome research um, mutations that could possibly help the hematopoietic stem cell hang out in life longer. Um, this was um, another big paper in Nature out of uh, Dieter Egley's group from the New York Stem Cell Foundation. Yes, uh, Dieter. Congrats to Dieter because I know uh, Dieter's been doing this for a long time. Um, and he's been doing working on somatic cell nuclear transfer, SCNT. We talked about this. This has been in, it's making waves now. It's making a comeback. There was a bunch of publications on SCNT. And Dieter's group pub, uh, published and reported for the first time the generation of uh, stem cells using SCNT from a diabetic woman. So it was a diseased line um, using SCNT, which is pretty cool. Um, and I, I was talking with the people from NICEF, and Dieter's going to come on the show and talk to us about that. So we're trying to schedule that. Hopefully we can get him for the next episode. And this that's good because it's very timely. A lot of SCNT in the news here. And it'd be good to get someone who's doing you know, this Dieter's kind of still doing it. Dieter showed me uh, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen, which is how they, you know, break down the wall for the eggs and yeah. isolate yep. the DNA. I mean, it was it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> it cool. Was, yeah, Dieter's Dieter's good, man. Yeah, Dieter's, yeah. Dieter's good. Yeah. Uh, he'll be a good guest. He he'll, he can blow your mind. That stuff is very very technically cool. Yeah. Um. Okay, let's see. I got just a couple more because I want to get to Kevin in cell. Good old cell, man. Um, out of Derek Rossi's group, and Derek Rossi's at uh, Harvard. Stu Orkin's on the paper as well. This is reprogramming committed murine blood cells to induce hematopoietic stem cells with defined factors. So this idea of Yosef's been around where you don't, where you, you know, direct reprogramming, we say you take a skin cell and turn it into a neuron. So they've, they're, in this kind of paradigm, they're taking a, a committed precursor and then making it turn into something else. So it's you know it's not as drastic, if you will. So this the goal was to make hematopoietic stem cells, which we just talked about, that sustain the blood throughout life. 
Mm-hmm. And so they show that they express six transcription factors. They can impart this multi-lineage transplantation pot- potential onto these committed lymphoid or myeloid pre- progenitors that really would only make the, the lineage below it. So they're basically able to make a committed cell a little more uncommitted by putting these factors in. So it's just another play on reprogramming. Um, and the cool thing is it's a, it's a transient expression. So they put that, you know, they put it in and then it goes away and that's enough to trigger the downstream uh, response and the, and, the, and the conversion. So cell, Derek Rossi. Yeah. Nice. And Stuart Orkin? Stu Orkin. Yeah, man. He's that guy in the regulatory networks. I think about networks, that when man. I think about him. Yeah. That's cool. Cool study. And I, I guess I'll just close with this this one here out of Stem Cell Reports. Um, this, this is a cool paper for you guys. You know, it's 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 really interesting. And you talk, you brought up organotypic. You talked about, remember, Jürgen Noblick and those 3D models. This was a 3D in vitro model of functional epidermal permeability barrier from pluripotent cells. So basically, they were able, able to make a layered skin. So they can make an epidermis that's in three dimension because that's really important to, to mimic the barrier because skin is very, very complex. It's very layered. It has the keratinocytes and then all the different like sub layers and, and for cosmetics and for just general health of skin, it's important to have that 3D model. And they're able to do that and they show it. It's very, very cool to see in stem, yeah, stem, sure. stem cell it's, reports. It's great for burn victims. It's great for PETA people who don't want animal research for cosmetics done. It, it, that's awesome if we can model skin in a dish. So this was out of the group of uh, Theodora Maru and Dusko Illich, I believe, in London and Greece. Um, so check that out. So that's that's what I got. We'll, uh, we'll keep everyone updated on this crazy uh, story from J- Japan and the new, the new papers that come on. But I think we should get to our, uh, our guests for tonight. All right, Chris, why don't you bring on our guest? All right, so tonight's guest is, a, uh, is an awesome stem cell scientist and a friend, Dr. Kevin Egan. So Kevin is a professor of stem cell and regenerative biology at Harvard University and a principal investigator at the Harvard Stem Cell Institute. Uh, Kevin has achieved uh, international recognition for his work in the field of stem cell biology, and his current research focuses on applying the knowledge gained from stem cell biology to study the mechanisms underlying amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, and otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease. We talked about that a bit on a couple shows, actually, here in the podcast. And they're looking to discover some new therapeutic targets for this disease. Uh, Dr. Egan is a recipient of many awards, including the prestigious MacArthur Genius Award. And in 2009, he was selected as one of 50 Howard Hughes Medical Institute early career scientists, which is a pretty, uh, pretty amazing honor. And in addition to running his laboratory, he also serves as the chief scientific officer of the New York Stem Cell Foundation and a whole bunch of other things that he does for the field of stem cell biology. So with that, I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Kevin Egan. Kevin, welcome aboard, man. Guys, thanks for having me on the show tonight. All right. So let's, let's, let's kick it off. Let's, let's get going. I know you've got a tight schedule, so let's start here. You're, you know... You love this field. You're in stem cell biology for a reason. So why, just before we get into your work and you describe to the audience what you do, tell everybody why you believe in stem cell biology and why you're fascinated with it. What, what, what draws you to it? I mean, I grew up in uh, middle America, central Illinois. And so as someone who loved biology as a kid, um, I think like a lot of people, my mother brainwashed me into thinking I had to be a doctor in order to do that. And um, it wasn't until really I was nearing the end of college and I got into grad school that I started to spend some time in the lab and I, I just fell in love with that. I, I couldn't believe that um, you could actually get paid for doing research, um, having a job where 
time really flew by uh, was not something I ever experienced before. And, you know, uh, after college, um, I had to kind of mark some time figuring out what I was going to do since I decided not to follow through with medical school. And I ended up at the NIH. And it was while I was there that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ian, uh, uh, Ian and others cloned the sheep in Edinburgh and uh, that really got my attention. I mean, cloning science, um, at that time, the derivation of the first human embryonic stem cells really captured everyone's imagination. And, you know, I really thought to myself, um, that's an exciting field. That That's something that would really be interesting to work on. And um, and so with that in mind, um, it was a pretty easy choice to end up going to MIT for grad school, where I worked with um, with Rudolf Janisch on, on early cloning technology and, and, and reprogramming research. And really that um, uh, led me to um, Harvard Stem Cell Institute. I was just getting out of Rudolf Janisch's lab when um, uh, they were forming the Harvard Stem Cell Institute now 10 years ago. And uh, it just seemed like the right place to think about translational applications of, uh, of that kind of research, a really kind of an amazing environment to, um, to continue that, uh, that, that interest and fascination with stem cell and reprogramming biology. And so, and so that's uh, in, in, sorry, in, in terms so that's of, where you stayed, right? That's where you ended up. You're now you're now a professor at Harvard. You have your lab there, and you guys are you guys are you're, you're focused on a bunch of things, but but you're really really kind of honed in and 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 really really sunk your teeth into this pretty devastating disease, uh, ALS, and and you guys are using stem cells to not only try to model the disease, but trying to understand the disease progression and how you can possibly come up with new therapeutic targets, and so. You know, why, could you just go back and start, um, you know, back in, I believe it was 2008, correct, correct if I'm wrong, Kevin, but that's when that first paper came out in science from your lab where you guys were really the first, at least to my knowledge, to describe modeling a disease in some aspect using IPS technology. And so can you start there and then kind of walk us through uh, how you've used uh, stem cell and IPS technology to, to look at a d- devastating disease and what you've learned from it? And then I guess we can get into your to the recent papers that have just come out uh, that we kind of mentioned in the last episode a little bit. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. I mean, you know, the story even begins before that because already in 2003, 2004, when I was starting my lab at Harvard, we had this idea that um, if we could make patient-specific stem cells, then we'd be able to produce um, the differentiated cells that, uh, that died in a patient uh, in order to study why they got sick in the first place. And, of course, originally we thought we'd use cloning technology to do that. And, um, and really it's actually just... Um, you know, papers in the last few months um, uh, coming from a variety of labs, including Dieter Egli, used to be a postdoc in our group, that really show that's possible now. Um, and uh, in those early years, um, you know, a big challenge was uh, getting the material that we needed to do those kinds of experiments. And, and I think the, you know, the kind of um, sociological challenges of doing that kind of research are familiar to people. And that's why when um, Shinya Yamanaka actually at a Keystone meeting, right after we'd gotten uh, permission to do nuclear transfer research, came out with this initial, um, at least oral description of IPS cells. I was sitting in the back row with my friend Amy Wagers, and I had this feeling washing over me that all this regulatory work that we had done uh, <laughs> you know, to be able to do human cloning was just going to be for nothing, because this looked real, looked really, really good. And um, so right in that moment, we shifted a bunch of activity into trying to replicate what hadn't even been published yet, but had just been talked about in, in, in this initial seminar, but with human cells. And honestly, because we had already set up collaborations to collect material for cloning, 
it meant that we were in a great position to um, to be one of the first groups to move forward to try to make patient-specific IPS cell lines. And so, although we weren't the first people to make human IPS cell lines, we were the first people to make them from from patients. Those patients happened to be from uh, those patients happened to have ALS, and um, and because Hinnick Wichterly had already developed great methods for making mouse motor neurons um, uh, from mouse stem cells. And we've been working closely with them to um, to make human motor neurons from from human embryonic stem cells. We were in a great position to basically execute on making um, human motor neurons from ALS patients in a, in a demonstration that you could basically go from fibroblasts collected from a patient um, right down to the nervous cell type that, that that was lost in their body. That was a pretty exciting time. You know, I think there was a lot of optimism in 2008 about that. Um, you know, uh, later I, I can tell you about why it was that um, that we were working on ALS at that time. But I think um, although the optimism was there, I think it's actually proven much more challenging to use these cells for disease modeling to, you know, to really understand the variation in, in, in IPS cells that comes out of uh, reprogramming and they're inherent to this process is something that's really taken the last few years to figure out. And, and honestly, you know, it's been a long time coming, five or six years now, um, until I've really felt confident enough about this system to be able to use it for discovery of therapeutic targets. And, and as you said, we've just published our first papers in, in the last month um, describing the, the fruits of that labor. I'm really excited about it, and, and uh, everything continues to go smoothly. Uh, I'm very hopeful that some of those... Um, um, those mechanisms are going to lead to clinical trials and patients soon. Yeah, I think ALS as a disease is like, it's like, such it's a hard thing to account for. I, I mean, we it's such a black box. We don't even know the cause for, what, 90% of the cases? And then you got these strange cases of the Italian soccer team and all these other theories. And also the treatment is also really hard to, you know, Re- restore somebody's nervous system into you know the, the periphery um it just seems like such a, both from a etl at etiological standpoint and a treatment standpoint so many things with als there's so many issues and I, I was just wondering if you could speak maybe to some of these question marks in terms of how the disease forms like what is going on there and what you found uh using stem cells to model the disease yeah, you know, you're you're, you're right. Um, about ten percent of the disease is clearly inherited, and um, and that gives you an opportunity to try to go out and find the mutations that um, are inherited in those families and cause disease. That's been a really active area lately, and what we know from those studies, I'd say in aggregate, is that um, there are probably more than twenty genes that can harbor mutations, uh, and indeed there are hundreds of mutations in those twenty genes, which can all cause ALS. Um, and um, and different families carry um, uh, different mutations in these individual genes that um, that usually, in an autosomal dominant fashion, ca- cause disease. Um, now, sequencing efforts um, and some genome-wide association studies and the other ninety percent you talked about, which are really kind of unexplained, are beginning to reveal that some fraction of those patients have the same mutations that are found in the um, the familial ten percent. Mm. Um, but even so, there's still a lot of um, you know, if you want to use a pie analogy, a, a lot of the pie that we don't understand when it comes to the entirety of ALS patients. And um, but within the next couple of years, um, people like Bob Brown and, and, and David Goldstein are going to sequence more than a thousand ALS exomes, and we'll have a really good idea of whether or not there are rare common variants in those patients that are that are causing them to get disease. Um, one of the biggest discoveries um, in recent years was the um, 
the discovery of a mutation on chromosome 9 in, in a previously unstudied gene, um, which is a really weird mutation. It's a, uh, it's a hexanucleotide repeat expansion in the intron of this gene that no one had ever studied before. It looks like this mutation happened in someone of Nordic descent of, um, about a thousand years ago and has been radiating around Europe since then. And um, and that's probably the single biggest genetic cause of ALS at this point. If you're of Northern European descent, and you have ALS. It's probably about a twenty percent chance that um, this is this is what's making you sick. So, is no this the that's the C nine ORF gene? C uh, is that the ORF that, gene? Yeah, it's just known by its um, its address on chromosome nine, C nine ORF seventy two. And people, I think, hadn't appreciated this gene because. Um, it doesn't always act with complete penetrance. So uh, 100% of the time, people don't get sick with this mutation. Some people manage to live their whole life without um, ever getting sick. And so its familial inheritance pattern wasn't wasn't as clear. So we don't know how many more things are, are like that um, out there in ALS. And really, that's one of the big complexities of thinking about how to treat this disease is we don't really know in these people who develop motor neuron disease, whether or not motor neurons get sick and die for the same reasons and through the same mechanism. So, you know, the most pessimistic view would be that um, these people um, have completely different diseases that will need very different therapeutics in order to be able to help them. And um, and that's really one thing that the IPSL research um, that we're doing is, is aimed at trying to understand. And I think this is still, for a lot of people, a surprising use of... Um, you know, of stem cell biology for, although your listeners are probably increasingly familiar with this, that in the case of ALS, as you said, you know, we have these, these enormous neurons that connect the um, spinal cord to the, to the muscle. Um, some of them are as long as a meter. And when these cells degenerate in disease, it's really hard to think about uh, making a transplant that could um, traverse all the way from the spinal cord to, say, the tip of your toe. And in this case, what we're really trying to use stem cells for to understand why those nerve cells get sick in the first place and to try to stop it um, early on in the disease process before it gets too far, before those cells are, are, are really dysfunctional or dead. And, you know, so really for us, the motor neurons that we make from patients are kind of a crucible for understanding how ALS-causing mutations make motor neurons sick. Um, and that's really where these recent papers come in. About 2% of ALS patients um, have mutations in a gene called superoxide dismutase. And um, so we were able to uh, make motor neurons from a couple of women who um, succumbed to um, the, the same mutation in this gene. And, and I think a really important part of our study was that we went in and used genome engineering to actually correct that mutation in the original uh, stem cell line, giving us a clean comparison um, uh, between a corrected cell line and the original patient. And when we made those motor neurons um, in this kind of clean genetic background, these isogenic cell lines, we were able to um, really more clearly see um, the pathways that were disturbed by that, that mutation. And, and that, that was the prostaglandin uh, study? So this particular study um, focused now more on, on performing RNA sequencing in the motor neurons themselves. Pre- previously, you know, we, we'd shown that um, uh, another event that happens in other cell types of the spinal cord, um, astrocytes and microglia, um, uh, they get changed by the disease process. There's something about motor neuron degeneration that, um, um, that these cells have an unexpected reaction to. And, and through prostanoid signaling, um, it seems 
um, these cells actually get even further agitated to motor neurons and, and, and participate um, in the degeneration of those cells. But in this case, in these newspapers that just came out last week hmm. or the week before, um, we focused more on the things that were going wrong inside motor neurons because of these disease-causing mutations. And there, um, I think kind of the most interesting thing that we found is that um, uh, the mutant protein, which, which causes disease in, in, in patients, was having a number of effects, um, which had actually been seen in, in ALS models before, in animal models. But what hadn't been realized is that um, a lot of those effects were actually the direct result of um, the cells being physiological act- physiologically active. And because we had these human nerve cells in culture, we were able to um, very easily modulate their activity and show that when we silence the neurons and stop them from firing, a lot of the um, the negatively acting pathways in those cells were uh, were also um, shut off, and that helped protect the cells. And in a collaboration with Clifford Wolf's group at, at Children's Hospital, what we were able to find um, were some of the physiological mechanisms that were responsible for um, um, for these other downstream changes. And what's cool about that is that it's actually led to the realization that uh, an anti-epileptic drug, which is already on the market, uh, may actually be able to be retasked as an ALS therapeutic, and um, and that that's something that we're we're pursuing. You know, early on in these experiments, although we were excited about this, we um, were worried that that finding was only going to be relevant to the small number of patients that had these SOD1 mutations, about two percent of ALS patients. But one of the coolest things about IPS cells is that now that we had these great um, assays, we could take IPS cell lines from people who had other forms of ALS and run the same experiments and see whether or not their motor neurons had the same kind of dysfunction. And at least for a couple of other forms of disease, including the one that we talked about, uh, patients with mutations in C9 or 72, we saw a really similar um, uh, change in the the physiological activity of those cells, which was also fixed by this anti-epileptic drug. So, um, you know, we're really pursuing the possibility um, that this could be a new drug um, uh, for ALS in cooperation with GSK right now. We're in the final stages of trying to negotiate um, with them to start a clinical trial for this drug where we test this hypothesis um, that, uh, that the drug can fix physiological problems in these patients, too. So that, that could be a really great and exciting moment for us if, if, if this research could move forward into the clinic like that. And, and this could be found in the cell stem cell paper of, that came out in April? Yeah, that's right. It's, um, half of the work's reported in a cell stem cell paper in April. And on the same day, um, along with the, uh, uh, the group led by Clifford Wolf and, and Brian Wenger, we published another companion paper in Cell Reports that uh, describes a bunch of the, uh, the physiological work. You know, there's there's two things, Kevin, that 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 are really awesome about uh, about this. The first one you mentioned is I think a lot of people, you know, people like to poo-poo things a lot, and I think a lot of the things with these diseases where you have sporadic form and familial, in which case the familial is much less. They'll say, well, you know, you're looking at this very rare, small thing. What about all the other people? How you know you're putting all your time in here, and I think I think there, obviously the rationale there is, but if we can learn something right from this. It, at least we'll be able to see, you know, something. We can learn something here that's very defined, and then we can see if it's more, you know, broad. And that's exactly what you did, and I think that's very, very important for everybody to see. And that, that was that's the first thing. The second thing is when you're looking at neurons, and we talk about neurons a lot on the show, 
they are an electrical cell. They do fire. They do have action potentials. They are excitable. And I think nowadays, especially when you're looking for phenotypes, right, when you're going to make cells sick, especially neurons, you have to interrogate their functional electrical activity. And I think there's becoming a real big movement to that. And so it's really, really awesome to see that you guys, in fact, did that and saw almost a signature, if you will, an electrical signature that's off um, and, and, and are looking in a way to correct that. So I think that's very, very, very awesome. Um, and so going down that road, Kevin, you're talking about drugs. We like to ask the guests that come on, you know, we talk about stem cells, we, you, the big tooth, the big to our cell replacement therapies and, and using them to find novel drugs. And so we like to, we like to kind of ask for the people out there who wanted to know, Yosef uh, says, where's the beef? Is it your opinion that, 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 that drug discovery is more, uh, you know, going to be the first, the first therapeutic, if you will, that comes from stem cell biology? Or do you, you still still cell replacement therapy running, running alongside it? You think we're a little further out for that? Well, I mean, I think it's really depending on the indication. You know, I mean, people are really pushing the pedal to the metal to try to get iPS cell cell types into the clinic for transplantation indications. You know, you've got um, folks in, at Syra and Kyoto really driving forward, you know, RPE and midbrain dopamine transplants uh, derived from iPS cell lines. Uh, of course, also, you know, big pushes in, in embryonic stem cell derived cell transplants. These things are you know, are really, really on their way. Um, you know, I think we're hoping that, that the clinical trial that um, that would be initiated as a result of these studies might begin as soon as this fall. Um, you know, that, that would obviously be exciting, and, you know, I think that that would be certainly amongst the first um, clinical studies that were initiated as part of, um, of IPSL research. You know, uh, and I think in a way it's going to be really indication-specific with regards to your answer. And I, I think certainly for ALS, at least for the moment, um, you know, it's looking like the best options are going to be to try to put, um, you know, therapeutics forward. That being said, there's a really interesting trial um, that's company-led. Um, I don't have any interest in that company, but uh, they're making neural progenitor cells and, um, and transplanting them into the spinal cord mostly to hopefully have protective effects there, um, not to replace neurons, but to make other types of supportive cells that might be going wrong. And, um, you know, I could see how eventually that, that sort of trial might have an IPSL component to it. And, um, you know, I think, I think time, time will tell. Certainly for our, our own research, um, you know, pharmaceutical angle is much closer. I, sorry, Yos. I was going to say, I think there's also obviously an FDA component there, right, Kevin? I mean, I feel that, uh, you know, with, with drugs, that's just what we know and for for cell replacement strategies it might be a little bit more of a black box in the fda and so maybe that's going to be a hurdle that we still have to jump so um you know uh, i'm not i'm not there in my own world and my own research yet that far in but from everything i'm understanding that that's obviously something that's going to have to be worked out and worked through yeah the, you know the unknown is hard you know for a lot of orphan diseases including als they are very well organized you know clinical research um consortia that are good at doing drug clinical trials. You know, it's what they do. And they're there, they're ready to receive. And, um, you know, they, they can really help researchers like me execute. And that's certainly going to be the case here. You know, if we succeed in moving this into the clinic, it's going to be in collaboration with the Northeast ALS Association. And, uh, and Merrick Kachovich and Brian Wenger from MGH will probably lead this clinical study. Um, but, um, you know, uh, people realize that this is a challenge. You know, actually... 
a really interesting thing to you know for your listeners could be to know that uh, Japan, for instance, has just really streamlined the process of moving forward with um, iPS cell derived and other sorts of stem cell derived cell therapies there, trying to make it a very hospitable environment for that kind of clinical research. It's, it's actually really interesting. So maybe that will do something to kind of unstick the roadblocks. I have a question for you, Kevin. How how did the neuroscience community miss this C9 or 72 gene? It seems like when I was learning about ALS, it was like SOD1 was the one. And, you know, where did this gene come from? Apparently, it's in, what, half of the patients now or showing an over or some sort of mutation uh, with this gene. Where where did it come from? How did, this, how did we overlook this gene? Yeah, it seems like a pretty big omission, right? And, right. And the answer is... Uh, in retrospect, obvious, and that is that unlike um, unlike mutations in SOD1, which almost invariably make people sick and almost invariably make them sick kind of early in life, um, where when you watch this mutation run through a family, it's just generation after generation after generation gets motor neuron disease, and it's, it's bad, Um the story from an in- inheritance perspective is kind of different for CNRF72 because when you look at it running through a family, the, the first thing is that not everybody necessarily gets sick. So some people can survive having this mutation for a very, very long time, which by definition means it's incompletely penetrant in its effects. Hmm. Um, the other thing that made people miss it for a long time um, and why it wasn't such a clear part of people's you know clinical story is because when people do get sick because of this mutation, they don't always get ALS. Sometimes they get frontotemporal dementia. Sometimes they get Parkinson's disease, hmm. not necessarily a motor neuron disease. So you can ask a patient, oh, did you have any, you know, did anyone in your family ever have motor neuron disease before? And they'll say, no. You know, I mean, maybe my, you know, my mom was like a little crazy when she was old before she died. <laughs> but, um, you know, nothing, you know, nothing too bad. And, um and so, you know, people missed it. And it really wasn't until people went back and looked at large pedigrees in, in Wales and looked at families where neural degeneration was prominently inherited. And they considered in these families these different forms of neurodegeneration the same disease that could be caused by a single mutation. Did they nail the mapping and linkage to this, uh, this region on chromosome 9? And actually, it wasn't until a, a large consortium did a genome-wide association study in northern European ALS patients that they hit the linkage interval. Well, they actually hit the association interval where this um, this mutation is found, and and that's a really interesting story too. Because usually, when you think of a genome-wide association study, you think of a, a, a very very common DNA polymorphism having a small effect in a lot of patients to push up um, the odds of ALS patients having that haplotype compared to other patients. That's not what was happening here. Instead, what happened was there was a rare mutation that happened on a subset of people that had that haplotype, and the effect of that mutation was really big in those people. And so it pushed that haplotype to statistical significance. And um, and, and it was the combination of those two things that, that led to its discovery. And the final thing that, that like really must people up is it's a really weird mutation. It's yeah. not a mutation in a protein. It's 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 in an intron. Um, it's a hexanucleotide repeat. It's hard to see by normal kind of genotyping. And 
I think all these three things together made it really tough to find. And in terms of the environmental toxins or whatever, just I was wondering, uh, what is up with that Italian soccer team where they had uh, extremely high rates? Uh, is it people, uh, I guess, hypothesize that it could be whatever they were pesticides on the lawn? Or is, is there anything known about that or any sort of environmental theories that could be uh, associated with the disease? Well, the, the only published studies that I know of that people in the field widely, uh, you know, accept to be statistically sound in the context of, you know, ALS and public health and epidemiology and environmental effects in the disease are, are studies that were actually done of, um, of the frequency of ALS in, in individuals who were enlisted in the American Armed Forces. And, and there it's pretty clear from my reading of those papers that if you were enlisted um, – in the Army or the Armed Forces, the U.S. Armed Forces, in the first Gulf War, then the odds of you getting ALS were higher than in the general public. And if you were deployed to the Gulf, your odds were even yet higher than those in, in the general military population. Um, so we know that. So, so as a result, ALS is a Gulf War syndrome. Hmm. And, um, and, and the DOD spends money on ALS research every year to try to solve this. Uh -huh. um, as far as other effects go, people have, have pointed to a variety of different potential um, environmental influences, you know, things ranging from head injury, uh, peripheral nerve injury, to um, uh, potentially toxic pesticides, to, um, you know, even environmental um, agents in water um, that might be um, associated with cyanobacterial activity. You know, there's a really interesting anecdote um, about Native Islanders in Guam and, um, and kind of a weird form of Parkinson's, um, ALS, um, that natives there used to, um, used to, but no longer seem to get. And the best hypothesis for that was that either there was something, um, about that population, uh, that when it began outbreeding with Westerners, uh, went away, or, uh, there was something in their diet. And, and people have put forward this, um, uh, palm nut, um, hmm. which, uh, they made flour out of and, 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 uh, that also their favorite build, uh, sorry, grilled bats uh, liked to eat as well, <laughs> um, uh, may have been concentrating in, in that nut. And um, but what that is, is 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 not clear. Although a cyanobacterial amino acid analog, which might destabilize proteins, has been put forward as the potential agent. But there's nothing like what you guys have for Parkinson's disease. Um, where, boom, I give this to animals, boom, I give it to people, midbrain neurons die, other neurons don't die, and right. you don't have a strong environmental effect. We don't have that in ALS. It'd be great if we did. Well, right. there's also like a yellow star thistle in Russia that gives, I think, horses Parkinson's too. So there's definitely so, some, you know, environmental toxins out there that, or something that people are eating that could possibly spark something like that but that's interesting i never heard that but mm. i guess uh you got to go soon so we're gonna ask you real quick to give us a, a funny story that you could share with our audience either from your uh postdoc or professorship um or even graduate days graduate school yeah, I'll, tell, I'll tell a story about uh, about graduate school and and you know it's actually a story about how important when you're trying to do something for the first time replication can be you know when you read that paper from somebody else it's really easy to say okay i'm going to replicate that result and then it's really tempting to be kind of lazy about that to go out and to say okay i'm going to get a bunch of stuff that's like the stuff that they used and uh, and do that and then try their experiment and then uh, a lot of people are really disappointed when that approach fails and um but i don't think that's necessarily surprising it can be really hard to uh, repeat other people's um, new technologies. And, 
And usually that's because um, there can often be a, a secret component of things that people don't even realize themselves is important. And that's why true replication doing exactly what that other group is so important. And the example I can give you is mouse cloning. So, you know, when mouse cloning was first invented in, at University of Hawaii, um, it was, they were pretty much the only people that could do it. And, and honestly, they didn't understand. I mean, it was technically challenging, the micro manipulations. It was like playing a really difficult video game. Hmm. And, and other groups couldn't get this to work. Um, and the guys from Hawaii would go on these like cloning road shows where they would like go to your lab and they would bring all your, all their stuff and they would like show up and they'd clone mice there and they'd be like, see, you can do it. And like cl- clone mice would be born in your lab and they'd go away and you couldn't get to work and you were, you know, pissed. Um, <laughs> And, and finally, you know, I teamed up with one of these guys, a great scientist named Hidenori Okutsu, who is um, at uh, the Japanese uh, National Institute of Child Health and Development now. And, um, and we, like, decided we were going to figure this out. Like, why could the Hawaiians do it and why could no one else do it? And at the end of the day, it turned out that there was this one reagent that um, if you didn't use exactly, exactly, exactly the brand of reagent that they used and prepare it in exactly the way that they prepared it, it just killed the experiment dead. And you know, it was a really un, you know, unusual reagent. Um, you know, it, they had the same bottle of that same reagent in their lab for like 50 years. And like, that was the magic sauce. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, everyone else was, uh, was screwing up the experiment before they even started because they were just making this one chemical in the wrong way. And, and so, you know, we fixed that, and, and the whole thing just started working like crazy, and then, blam, everyone could on mice who tried. So, um, you, know, that was a, that, you know, that was a hilarious you know, just experience, because, it, you know, it just, like, it made people feel so, including myself, feel, like, so inadequate. Like, why can't I do this? Like, I watch these guys do it. I do I can even do it with them while they're in the room. <laughs> the room and, like, the ability to go goes away. And it's just because they were taking their magic reagent with them. And they didn't even know it was magic. What was this reagent? I'm curious now. Was it their lift or their L-glue? What, what, what was... No, it was, it was a really unusual high molecular weight polymer that the cells get suspended in when you, when you pick them up to inject them into the egg. Wow. And, you know, there's no reason why this, this reagent even necessarily had to be used for cloning. Um, you know, the method had originally been used for um, uh, injecting sperm into egg in a, a method called intercytoplasmic sperm injection. And they just happened to use this stuff because it was really thick and it slowed the sperm down so you could catch them. Hmm. And, you know, that was basically the only reason that they were using it at the time. So again, you know, this reagent just kind of happened into this method and ended up being a big part of the story. The, the, the cloning roadshow. I think of that show on TV, the, an, the antique whatever roadshow, road show. and I just got like a weird vision of a show on TV hosted by Kevin Egg and the cloning roadshow. Um, all right, I know Kevin, you got to go. Uh, everybody out there, he's uh, Dr. Kevin Egg, and you can, if you don't know him, you will now, and you should go read his papers and check out his work, including his uh, his latest paper that was just published in Cell Stem Cell. Uh, and so, I just want to give credit uh, give credit to Evangelos, uh, Kiskenis, and Jackson Sando, the first authors. Congratulations, Kevin. Keep up the good work, man. And we're going to get you to come back on again when you have some more time to, to fill us in and everything else. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, guys. I had a blast. All right. Take care, man. Take care. So we should also talk about how uh, Kevin uh, was, uh, I guess, he, he was the PI for, for Justin Uchida. 
who we also interviewed, and Asif, Mar- current PI for Asif Maruf, and uh, was recruited, I believe, by uh, Melton. Uh, so there's the pedigree right there. And um, I don't know. I thought I'd just throw that in there before we go on a little rant. Yeah, you know, he's a as you as you guys I'm sure heard he's very he's very uh very well spoken Kevin is very 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 good on the microphone he's good in front of a camera he's a, he's a good he's a good spokesman for our field he's very passionate and uh very smart guy so I'm glad he got to come on he had to run out cuz he was uh, had a, he has an 8 o'clock meeting and so he had to run out so uh thanks to him let's um what do you say, Yos? Here's my rant. So I wanted to rant a little. I wanted to get Kevin involved in the rant, but um, he had to go. So we can fire this thing up. I'm I'm sitting here the other day, and I have this idea. You know, as scientists, we come up with ideas. That's what we do. And I'm thinking to myself, that's a great idea to test, right? That's an awesome idea to test. That's a great idea to test, right? And so I'm saying this out loud, and someone says to me who, uh, who is next to me, they say, well, why don't you, you have a lab. Why don't you just go in there and test it? Right. And uh, I said to myself, man, I wish it was that easy. And so then I started to get very frustrated with the whole idea. And this brings up the rant. I feel that creative. I don't know if I talked about this. I feel like creativity in science is just just flopping and floundering away. I feel that I feel that we're no longer able to be creative in science. And the reason for that is it has it's directly linked to the ability to get funded. Um, I feel that the funding is so bad and so low that you're kind of forced and strong-armed into writing grants on certain things to to get money rather than the ideas and the creativeness, you know, the creative brains that a lot of scientists have. If you just let a creative scientist be creative and and explore their idea, I guarantee that we would be much more successful. Unfortunately, our system, I understand why you can't do that, right? But do you feel that way, Yos? Do you feel like we're stripping creativity out of science just because we're making this so streamlined? Yeah, yeah, and um, we we talked about this with uh, Chris Smith before um, on the last episode, and it's it, it keeps coming around. But uh, I think you know eventually, it, I've been calling obviously for the doubling of the NIH budget, which I think would really address what you're saying in a grand sense. But like, I I feel like you know we've done it before in the '90s. The NIH budget was doubled, and so it's completely doable. But um, I, but, but is but is it only that? I know we've talked about it before, but I'm just really thinking about: is it only that? Is it is it only funding? I mean, I, it must be right. I mean, I think I think part of the problem here is, um, you know, uh, when you think of when I think of creative people, if I think of artists, right? I think of an artist who's who you think of the typical struggling artist, the guy in the city who's who's kind of broke. You know, he's living on someone's couch, and he he's he doesn't care, right? Because his thing, man, is his art, right? That's what he lives for. He's he's just he's gonna die trying to make his art. And he doesn't care. He doesn't give in. And and that's great. I could admire that. But on the other side, um, people have lives and they have they have to make a living. And you can't make a living just off being creative. And you can't run a lab off being creative. And there must be a fine balance, right? I just feel that um, we need to award creativity in science a lot more. We need to focus that part of, you know, training, graduate student training. We should really focus on being creative. Yeah, we should teach scientific method. I just feel like creativity's kind of gone out the window. It's because you got to get that grant, you got to publish that paper, you got to do all the XYZ, otherwise you're never going to make it. And um, 
you know, I wanted to talk about it with Kevin is because he won that MacArthur Award. And, and you know, that award is a creative award. It gives a smart person money and allows them to be creative. And, of course, it's easy to be creative when you have money. So I guess it's all cyclical, right? I just I just I really do feel that we shouldn't be stripping creativity out, especially in the youth when they're trying to learn. I think it's a very important thing. Yeah. So I guess besides the, you know, the funding stream, I, I, I mean, just inherently a creative project in science is high risk. Right. You know, this is one of those high risk, maybe high reward things. And typically, I I guess like DARPA was the ones that would fund all these crazy ideas back in the day, like the Internet or something like that. You know, and uh, where where are those projects these days? Uh, And how does how how is that going to be fostered in the future? Um, I really don't know. I I don't (laughs) don't know. So so, uh, thanks, Kevin, again. Yost, my man, you want to hit that music button and we will see you guys in the next episode. All right. Take care, Chris. All right, man.